So we are in our series called Cross Connections, and our, the whole point of this series, we're wanting to see ourselves in the people who were around the cross when Jesus was crucified. And so this morning, we're going to talk about two people who had, were front and center in the cross, the thief on the cross and the Roman centurion. And so we're going to talk about contemplating the cross this morning. So when I was in college, I had a semester when I was at Southern Methodist University in Paris. And I took two art history courses, one at the Louvre Museum and one at the Lorangerie Museum. And I have to tell you, they were amazing. Because in Paris, we're not looking at slides of great art. We're looking at the real thing. And some of these uh, paintings, you know, you see on a screen, and they're, oh, that's kind of cool. Then you see this vast painting, and you realize what an amazing thing this is. Well, one of the things that became immediately apparent to me as a college student is that a dominant theme in the history of art is Jesus. Jesus in mosaics, Jesus on canvas, Jesus in stone, Jesus in stained glass. Jesus is without a doubt the dominant figure in the history of art. And it's kind of fun to see how different artists thought about depicting Jesus. And it doesn't get boring because you've got Renaissance artists painting in one way. You've got Romantic artists painting in another way. You've got neoclassical artists painting in yet another way. And everybody has a way of depicting Jesus that's very exciting. One of my favorite pieces is a piece called the Eisenheim Altarpiece, painted by Matthias Grunewald. Matthias Grunewald painted this, and you'll notice that the hands of Jesus are twisted and claw-like. You'll notice that the body of Jesus has lesions, and it's poked with thorns. So why did Matthias Grunewald paint Jesus on the cross in that way? The reason why was this was painted for the, uh, for the monastery at Eisenheim that housed people who were suffering from the ergot of rye syndrome. When people would create bread from rye, there was a certain kind of, of uh, fungus called ergot of rye. And that fungus would cause devastating uh, physical abnormalities. Uh, it would produce a claw-like hand, and it would produce lesions on the skin. So the idea was that people who are suffering from this in their hospital beds would see and contemplate the cross, and having seen that, they would then take courage that the man on the cross understood and identified with their pain. And so this Eisenheim altarpiece was painted specifically so that people could meditate on the cross in the midst of some dire and drastic suffering. And so we want to, you know, we, we want to see really that the cross is an endless source of meditation, even people who are suffering deeply. So we're going to look at these two figures, the centurion and the thief on the cross, and they could not be any more different the centurion is on the right side of the law. The thief's on the wrong side of the law. The centurion has a great future. The thief is dying. The centurion is powerful. The thief is literally paralyzed as he's pinned to the cross. The thief uh, begins with contempt. And the centurion also begins with contempt. 
And so let's take a look at, at these two and how they saw the cross. The thief contemplates the cross from a place of pain. Luke 23, um, when they came to the place that was called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other one on his left. Here's another version. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So now we understand that these criminals are criminals in the sense that they are robbers. And now in Luke 23, one of the criminals who were hanged railed against Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then turning to Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now let's, let's think about this story. When we think about Jesus going to the cross, we think about his cross, and often we forget about the two criminals on either side of Jesus. Jesus is in the middle. The criminals are on either side. And each one of these men are in the most horrible pain you can possibly imagine. You know, when you were crucified, you first were whipped, you were flogged. And that meant that there were people on either side of you who were bringing down cat nine tails onto your back. It would just destroy the skin on your back. And then you were forced to carry your cross from the place of your flogging to the place of the crucifixion. Once there, they put the cross, the top bar, down on the ground. They shoved you to the ground. And there were two men whose titles were flesh nailers. Flesh nailers. And they were responsible for taking the nine-inch nails and shoving them into your wrists and affixing you to the cross. When they lifted you up onto the cross and put you down, they jammed you down in such a way that it jolted and, and jarred you. And then comes, the, comes the, the time of dealing with the pain. Because anytime you wanted to breathe, you had to lift up on punctured feet to bring air in. And then when to exhale, you had to l let yourself down on punctured hands. Anytime you wanted to say anything, you had to lift yourself up on your feet to fill your lungs up with air. And then as you let yourself down, the air would go over your vocal cords and you could say something. And I want to tell you something. People who are being crucified loved to talk because their last bit of power was to curse and swear at the people below them who were torturing them. It's different with Jesus. Jesus makes seven statements in the cross, and they're statements of grace and kindness and mercy and, and character. As the crucifixions begin, all eyes are on Jesus. At first, the religious leaders are slamming him with criticisms. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, normally very dignified people, are yelling at him and screaming at him. And then, and then it extends to the common people. They wag their heads with scorn, mocking Jesus and ripping him to him about, about his claims. The soldiers get into the act. They are acting with contempt, just taking his clothes, dividing the clothes up among themselves, and then gambling for his tunic. 
And then the criminals, they step it up. And from one side, there's contempt. From the other side, there's contempt. And if you're, if you're Jesus, you're hearing contempt beneath you, contempt beside you, and the deafening silence of God the Father above you. This was an incredibly painful situation. The criminals were very bad people. The two words are used for these, these men. One word is the word lestes, which literally means terrorist. And the image that you conjure up of a terrorist is the same sort of image that they would have had as well. The other term means a worker of evil, an evil worker. These were people who were, who were very bad, and you kind of get the impression they knew each other. Like, like at first, they're kind of in cahoots with each other against Jesus. And then as they talk, it almost seems as if they know each other, and one is criticizing the other for his continued statements of contempt against Jesus. This was a painful, painful moment. One of the criminals has a change of heart. As he's plunged into his devastating place of cruelty and pain, his eyes are often directed toward Jesus. He heard Jesus when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He saw Jesus as Jesus is returning the contempt of the people below him with kindness. He sees something unusual about Jesus. I would argue that there was a supernatural aura around Jesus. The Bible never says this, but you get that sense. The great legal transaction is taking place in heaven. God the Father giving his son as our sin substitute. You've got to imagine there's a supernatural element taking place in the cross. And so this criminal has a change of heart, and he says something astonishing. He says, Jesus Remember me when you get to your kingdom. And I asked myself the question, how does he know that Jesus is the king? How does he know that Jesus is entering into a kingdom? Well, remember the title on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus was well known in the ancient world during his ministry. And this man starts to realize Jesus is real. No, he really is a king. And he's really going into his kingdom. His kingdom is going to transcend death. And I want to be in the presence of this guy who's suffering so nobly and so well on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gives him the comfort. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, what's he talking about? Where is this paradise? Well, the word paradise was a word that meant a walled garden. This is the uh, Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, Canada. Cindy and I were there this past summer. I tell you, I... I heard about this place for years. I thought, yeah, yeah, garden. No, this is an amazing, amazing place. And the idea of paradise was a walled garden that created peace. A walled garden that created safety and security. And Jesus is saying in the midst of the storm of suffering that he's going through, today, today, you're going to be with me in a place of power of peace, of kindness, of grace, of joy, of comfort. You're going to be with me in this place very soon today. Now, I've got to pause and just say something theologically about this. You know, when we think about, about life after death, we talk about it like it's heaven, and we have resurrection bodies, 
and we're going to be in this new heavens and new earth, and it's going to be an amazing place. And that is a wonderful promise in Scripture. However, when we die, when we die, we go to a place first, which in the Bible is called Abraham's side, or it's called paradise. Theologians call it the intermediate state. They call it the intermediate state. And it's a place where we are with Jesus, but we don't have a resurrection body quite yet. A resurrection body happens after Jesus returns. And so when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, what he's saying is, you're going to be with me, and where I am, where I am is a place of security, peace, grace, kindness, and comfort. Resurrection body in the new heavens and the new earth comes later. Now I will tell you, I've done funerals where I skip over the intermediate state part and go right to the heaven part. If I'm going to be thoroughly biblical, what I'm, what I'm going to say is that when we die, we are in the presence of the risen Jesus, wherever that is. And we will get our resurrection body and we will get our space in heaven later. But to me personally, I'm saying, I don't care where I want to be where Jesus is. That's where I want to be. And Jesus says that, you know, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And so when he talks about paradise, Jesus is saying that I'm going to bring you, O thief on the cross, into my presence the moment, the instant you die. And you will be with me. You know, that's Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. And we will be with Jesus. So that's the first story, the thief on the cross. He contemplates his pain. Now the centurion is contemplating the cross from a place of power. Thief on the cross, place of pain. Centurion, place of power. Now let's look at the scriptures that we see here. For the scripture in Mark, when the centurion was standing right in front of Jesus, he saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. So this guy has a front row seat to the crucifixion. He has a front row seat to all that's happening on the cross. And this implies that he's seeing something of the character of Jesus. When he saw the way he breathed his last. Truly this man was the son of God. Matthew 27, 54. We discover that the centurion and those with him, stop there for a second. The centurion is with the people whom he is leading. So there's a group of soldiers there at the foot of the cross. When they um, were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. And then another verse here, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising him, saying, certainly this man was innocent. He didn't just praise him once. He began to praise him consistently, saying, this man was innocent. Seems a little weird to be praising a man who just died, but the centurion has this idea that the man who just died is existing in some way after death. He understands something about the transcendence of the Son of God. So let's think about the centurion for for a moment. Roman centurions in the first century were extremely powerful people. Uh, they were in charge of approximately 80 to 100 legionaries, 
And these legionaries would fight in formation. So you've probably seen really good marching bands. I'm always amazed at these really big marching bands. They're marching all over the field. One line is marching through another line. And I'm thinking these band and marching band leaders are amazing. Think about the leadership that it takes to train all these people to, to play in formation, to walk in formation. It's amazing. Well, these legionaries had to learn how to fight in formation. And we're talking about real swords. As they're fighting in formation, they've got to be very precise because, you know, sword up and down. Oops, sorry, I got your ear. I'm so sorry. Here, let me pick it up. Pick it up. See, so we can get you to the ER, get it sewn back on. Uh, they had to learn how to fight in formation, and the centurions were the ones who taught the soldiers how to do that. These guys are really great leaders. It was really a coveted position. It's the highest rank you could obtain without a commission, so it would be roughly equivalent maybe to a sergeant major, perhaps, in the army. Took you about 15 to 20 years to get there, and once you got there, it was great because you got double the pay of the rest of the soldiers. But the biggest perk was the power. Because you got to carry the Roman vine staff. The Roman vine staff was a symbol of power. We have our symbols of power in our culture. For a Roman legionary, it was that vine staff. What you said went because the vine staff meant you had the power to punish. So these guys were extremely powerful people, and you can imagine that when they got to that position, they were very arrogant. They were very arrogant. So think about this particular centurion and what he went through immediately prior to the crucifixion. Mark 15, 16. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, Pilate's headquarters, and uh, they called together the whole battalion. Who would have led that battalion? Well, the centurion would have led that battalion. We assume it was the same centurion at the foot of the cross. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Contemptuously, by the way. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were physically striking his head with a reed. And don't think about a reed like those flimsy little reeds that grow by the riverside. Think about a stick roughly the size of a lacrosse stick. Not as big as a baseball bat, but maybe the size of a lacrosse stick. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. This is a scene of physical abuse, a scene of verbal abuse and verbal contempt. And I'm assuming that the centurion at the foot of the cross had been there, had been leading that, and had been just fine with all that had taken place so far. His attitude was, what, what do I care? I've seen thousands of these crucifixions. We've done this a thousand times. What do I care if yet another guy is put on the cross? They were hardened to suffering and death. You think any of these centurions dealt with an ancient form of PTSD? You better believe it. PTSD is not some like modern invention. We've, we've, named the, we've, we've named it now, but this has happened with everybody. It's, it's a human condition. And what do people normally do with PTSD? Um, they become excessively cruel. 
Sometimes they deal with their, with their pain through alcohol or substance abuse. But in the ancient world, you became excessively cruel and you used your power in a cruel way. But people also, in their pain, became open to the truth. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He was in World War I. I have seen the smashed men still moving like half-crushed beetles. What a terrible visual picture that is. I've seen the sitting or standing corpses, the landscape of sheer earth without a blade of grass, the boots worn day and night till they seem to grow on your feet. C.S. Lewis encountered what we would say is PTSD. And what happened to Lewis? Lewis took the pain of that encounter and he turned it into seeking the truth. And I wonder, did this guy who had seen so much and done so much, did this guy become, as a result of his trauma, a seeker after truth? I wonder if the centurion saw the character on the face of Jesus, saw the sign up on the cross, knew by reputation what this guy had claimed to have done, and said, you know what, I've got a change of heart. This guy's amazing. This guy is the real deal. This guy is somebody that I want to follow. I'm going to turn my heart toward him. And it happened. It happened at the moment of his death. He said, you know what, this man on the cross, he's the son of God. And I'm going to worship the son of God whose life undoubtedly extended beyond that death that I just saw. That's an amazing bit of faith right there. Don't you wonder what happened to this guy? Well, we don't know for sure, but there is definitely a tradition about him. Uh, the tradition tells us that his name was Longinus. Longinus was there when he died. Longinus was the guy who put the spear in Jesus' side. Longinus was one of the people who were, was guarding the crucifixion, and there, uh, the, the, the tomb, and therefore he saw the resurrection. I don't know if any of that's true, but that's what the, the tradition says. And that after he did all that, he went to the apostles, he declared that he was a follower of Jesus, they commissioned him to be a missionary to Cappadocia, his hometown, and he became a very well-known and famous follower of Jesus, a leader, a Christian leader, leading, leading many people to Christ. I don't know if that's true, but because John Wayne starred as Longinus in the greatest story ever told, it must be true, right? There's John Wayne starring as Longinus in the greatest story ever told. Don't know if it's true, but that's, that's at least what people, people think. So here we have to two totally different people viewing the cross. We have the thief who contemplates the cross from the vantage point of pain, and we have the centurion contemplating the cross from the vantage point of power. And really what I think this does is leads us to an idea, and the idea is that when we contemplate the cross, it produces transformation. The contemplating the cross produces a growing, continuous sense that we are being transformed into somebody new, somebody fresh, and somebody different. I love the way the gospel writers portray this. Th think about this for a second. The thief is high up on the cross, and yet he is at the lowest station socially. The centurion is low. He's at the foot of the cross physically, but he's at the highest station socially. 
And the gospel writers seem to be trying to tell, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that the thief and the centurion both contemplate the cross, and therefore it's relevant for everybody in between. Everybody can contemplate the cross and encounter the transforming power of God. So I can, I can relate to this personally because of a habit that I have. I love to read memoirs and biographies and history of great people, of not so great people, and a lot of people in between. So I uh, recently read the four-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson. I swore I would never read that book uh, because it's about 4,000 pages long. And, and you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't, I was in middle school when Johnson was, was president. I read the first chapter. I thought, you know, I'll read, I'll read up to chapter three. I completed the entire book. Because here's a person who was deeply flawed. And at multiple points, he made the wrong decision. And then he made a couple of amazing decisions. And then a few wrong decisions again. And I, I learned from crises. Read Corey Ten Boom's amazing book called The Hiding Place and the choices that she made, and why she made those choices. And the more I read, the more I realize that people are very complicated and complex, and they make one great choice here and a terrible choice over there. And why do they make those choices? Because they're contemplating and thinking about the wrong thing. What the gospel writers are, are, are telling us is that when we face a crisis, it's crucial that we contemplate the foundation of our existence, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, well, his, his biggest crisis was the crucifixion. Father, if this cup can be removed from me, please do it, yet not my will, but your will be done. And for us to contemplate Jesus on the cross produces a sense of transformation. Now, we see scriptures that, that command this, really, uh, Hebrews 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Look, that command, consider Jesus, is a com means, means to contemplate him, to think about him, to contemplate the fact that he was sent from the Father. That's the apostle part. To contemplate the fact that he's the bridge back to the Father. That's the high priest part. Contemplate Jesus. Here's another Verse, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Well, in order for me to live out that verse, I've got to think about what it would have been like to have been crucified with Christ. Like, what would that have been like for Jesus to be on the front of the cross and for me to be crucified with him on the other side of the cross? What would that be like? This is a verse that invites contemplation and meditation. Here's Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So if I'm going to have this mind, that means I have a perspective 
It's a cross-centered perspective. That cross-centered perspective brings me to a place of humility. But I have to meditate on the cross to get there. Here's another verse. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds you were healed is a quotation from Matthew 8.17 and Isaiah chapter 53. And the idea is that Jesus heals me of my root problem, my sin problem. But because my sin problem has been healed, it opens up the possibility that my, my physical malady might be healed in Christ's name as well. So why did Matthias Grunewald create the Eisenheim altarpiece? Well, it was because he wanted people, well, the monks wanted people who were sick to see the man on the cross bearing the symptoms of air god of rye syndrome so that people with those symptoms could say, Jesus, I love you. You're with me in my pain. You're with me in my suffering. Please heal me. Please give me relief from the pain. By meditating on the cross, they encountered something of the healing grace of God. We've been commanded to consider and meditate on Jesus, on Jesus' death on the cross. And I will tell you that um, we will never get tired of this. You ever get tired of certain songs? Certain songs go through your mind, you know, and you, just, you, hear, you think, oh, I'm so tired of that song. You know, I never want to hear that song again. We can get tired of things, right? You will never get tired of meditating on the cross. There is such a wealth of depth in the mystery and majesty of the cross. You will never grow weary of centering your thoughts in that direction. I know that because of Hebrews 5 verse 9. When Jesus had taken the scroll in heaven, the believers represented by the 24 elders sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, people from every tribe and language and people group and nation. The idea is that we're going to be in heaven, and we will be endlessly fascinated with the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And we will have much to praise him about for all eternity, because we'll see behind the scenes all the amazing things that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were doing to affect salvation on the cross. And let me tell you what your delight will be like in your meditation. Imagine that you have four children under the age of six. Can you get that in your head? Imagine that these four children have had a bad day. And that bad day means that one of them has the sniffles, and snot is all over everything. And then another one of them had a bowl of spaghetti, and the spaghetti and the meatballs and the sauce fell off of the high chair onto the dog. The dog ran around the house spreading spaghetti and meatballs all over the house. And then that night, a couple of them got sick, and one of them threw up in the bed. The other one woke up, smelled the smell, they threw up as well. 
You know, and you're thinking, I'm so done with this day. I, I just, I'm done with this day. So then all the kids are, are in bed. It's 11 o'clock at night. You start thinking happy thoughts about your kids. Like, oh, we have the greatest kids in the world. I'm going to go into their room and take a look. So you go into the room, you take a look, and you go, oh, she is so sweet. I love her so much. Look at him, his cherubic little face. I love him so much. What are you doing in that moment? <laughs> You're meditating. You're meditating on the, the wonder of your children. Parents do that all the time. I was with our son and daughter-in-law a, a while back. It had been a hard day. And guess what we talked about after they went to bed for the next hour? How awesome the kids were. That's how you will be in heaven times eight billion with, with Jesus' cross. There will be things about his cross you will go, Jesus, you are so awesome. I didn't know that. Didn't fully grasp that. Didn't fully comprehend that. And you will be endlessly fascinated by what Jesus did on the cross. So here's the idea. The idea is consistent contemplation on the cross brings change. Or you could say it this way, disciplined meditation brings transformation. And I would say continuous transformation. So with that in mind, let's look at some takeaways toward meditating more consistently on the cross. First takeaway is this. Let's start by understanding what, what meditation is. What is contemplation actually? Well, let me just say that there is a big difference between Christian and non-Christian meditation. Christian meditation is one thing. Eastern religious meditation is something completely different. In Eastern religious meditation, you are emptying your mind, you are embracing a mantra, and you are meditating on either the nothingness of the universe or you're meditating on a false deity. Eastern meditation is the wrong words, the wrong God, for the wrong reason. And it is not just some little neutral thing. When you engage in non-Christian forms of meditation, you are inviting spiritual warfare. I would say that it's a very dangerous practice. Christian meditation is entirely different. In Christian meditation, you are filling your mind with a piece of scripture. And you are meditating and honing in on that piece of scripture. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nehemiah 8, verse 10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. In my, my first job, I, I, had, I was in graduate school. I had, I had a job that was a very demanding job. I had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and go to this particular job. And I was exhausted one morning. And Cindy said, all day, just, just meditate on Nehemiah 8.13, the joy of the Lord is my strength. All day long, I'm moving boxes the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm meditating, filling my mind with truth that would empower me. I was in a relational struggle with one of my family members, and I was meditating on 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That was my, the focus of my meditation. Lord God, look, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus, that's how you were with me. That's how I'm going to be with this person. Meditation is contentful. It's not emptying your mind. Let's apply this to, to the cross. Let's say that you have committed a painful sin 
and you're struggling with guilt and shame, 1 John 2, 2 is a great place to meditate on the cross. If anyone does sin, which means it's going to happen from time to time, it's going to take place, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus has an official title. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. He has a job description. He is my advocate. And so if I'm feeling guilt and shame over a sin, I meditate on the cross. The Lord Jesus is now my advocate. He's my defense attorney. He goes to the Father. He says, Father, I have died on the cross for this person's sin. This person has received me. This person is not guilty. Minister your healing and forgiving favor to him or her. That's the way you meditate contentfully on the cross when you struggle with a place of sin. In that meditation, I begin to grow in love because I am focusing on the goodness of God toward me because of the cross. Here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is that as you meditate on the cross, start with praise. That, that's how the thief on the, uh, the centurion began. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. So he engaged in worship. You know, you don't worship a dead guy. You worship somebody who's alive. And he began worshiping Jesus. Yes, his body was there on the cross. He's worshiping Jesus, who is alive beyond the grave, victorious. And as you meditate, it's really good that you begin with a place of worship. So I have my mnemonic device called SPRRV. S stands for substitution. It's a theological term that says, he took my place. P is for propitiation. That's a big theological term that says, he satisfied the Father. The Father's demands were fully satisfied in the death of Christ. R stands for redemption. He paid the price. Paid the price for my sins. Reconciliation means he established peace. Victory. He won the victory. So my mnemonic device is SPRRV. I, I th think about super recreational vehicle. If I, if I want to remember, you know, how to go through those. Super recreational vehicle. SPRRV. And I just, I worship through those five areas so that I can meditate well. The next takeaway is if you're in pain, realize Jesus' death means he understands and enters in. Think about those people lying in their beds, looking at Matthias Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece. What are they realizing? They're realizing, wow, Jesus understands my pain. Jesus understands air god of rice syndrome. He understands your pain as well. If it's physical, emotional, spiritual, he understands your pain. And then finally, well, by the way, you see, see that the, the crossbar on that painting is bent. These crossbars did not bend under the weight of a human being in the ancient world. Why is Matthias Grunewald painting it that way? What he's, what he's doing is saying that Jesus' pain was so great, it bent what can't be bent. It bent the cross. So whatever you're going through, Jesus understands the burdens of your pain, and he can take care of it. And then the final takeaway features Tom Brady and Troy Aikman, because both these guys said the same thing after their Super Bowl wins. Tom Brady was quoted in 2005 in an interview with Steve Croft on 60 Minutes as saying this. He said, 
the Super Bowl was over, I was in my hotel, and I said, is that it? <laughs> you work your whole life to get to the Super Bowl. I won the Super Bowl. And there's got to be something more than this. And so if you're in a place of success, like the centurion was, a place of victory, a place of power, a place of human strength, that's great. But realize that Jesus' death brings you into a fundamentally greater power. Let's say that the tradition about Longinus is true. The guy's there at the crucifixion. He's there at the resurrection. The guy becomes a believer. The guy leaves his commission. He goes back to his hometown, and he witnesses based upon what he saw. He was there. So as we contemplate the cross in preparation for Easter, I just want to encourage you to delve deeply, deeply into what happened on the cross. And we'll get to Easter, you know, read, read the passion story. Read it in different versions. Read it in a way that just slows you down to visualize what happened as Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. Let's stand for a closing prayer.